0: Elizabeth Woodcraft and I'm a barrister. This podcast is about a book which came out recently called Feminist Judgments from Theory to Practice. In the English legal system, judges both interpret and make law, so their pronouncements can have a major impact on our lives. Most judges would consider themselves to be rigorous and neutral in their legal reasoning, but most judges and at every level are men. The Feminist Legal Judgments Project set out to explore the extent to to which this judge-made law may not be neutral at all, but instead be underpinned by values that reflect a male view of the world. The project focuses on a number of significant decisions, and in each case presents an alternative judgment written from a feminist perspective, which still follows the rules that bind any judge in court today. I asked Rosemary Hunter, Professor of Law at Kent University and one of the project organisers, where the idea came
1: from. As feminist researchers, we're generally taking a critical stance to law and pointing out the taken-for-granted assumptions that shouldn't be taken for granted and the various ways in which women's experiences are excluded and the ways in which women are just not taken seriously or given credence or whatever it is in law and that the law tends to operate to the disadvantage of women in many respects. And so we've been thinking about that in all our academic lives and the particular idea of doing the judgments project came from Canada, from the Women's Court of Canada. So it's a completely new form of research. It's not what we normally do. We normally write critical essays or we think of ways in which the law could be improved and make reform proposals and so on. But the idea of actually writing judgments was a completely new thing. So that's one of the ways in which we sold it. We said, look, we're inventing a new form of socio-legal research. And if this takes off, um, then it'll be very interesting. And you, you learn new skills and you're learning to really think about what it's like from the inside. And... It's different from just writing a critical essay because it's, all, it's quite easy to say, well, the court should have done this, that and the other, but to actually constrain yourself in the same way that the court was constrained and still find that you can reach a different result is much more powerful.
0: It was important that the feminist judgments were legally sound, that the critique of legal doctrine they contained was well-founded. Rosemary Hunter explains how they went about the task.
1: We we set a word limit, um, which ordinarily, I mean, if you were really being um, true to f- type, you wouldn't. But we had, we knew that they were going to go into a book, and we knew that the book couldn't be endless. Mm. Um, but we also just making sure that the language was appropriately judicial, uh, making sure that it actually had legal arguments and that the argument developed and that it referred to law. We had. Quite a bit of debate about whether we were going to contest the whole notion of what a judgment was and how it looks and how it feels and how it 's written and whether it uses emotion or not, and those kinds of things and The organisers, and certainly this was not a unanimously held position, but the three of us who were organising just took a very firm line and said, you know, one step at a time, let's first of all contest the content and then we can go on and contest the whole conception of judgement writing. But we're never going to have any credibility if we take two steps at the one time. We'll just never get the point across.
0: The book has been a very popular teaching tool in universities, As Rosemary Hunter
1: explains, there are a number of ways it can be used. One is to just reflect on the process of judgment writing and the way that judges construct their arguments. And so you can contrast the feminist judgment with the original judgment and say, what are the rhetorical strategies that they're using and how do they appeal to the law and all that kind of thing and what are they doing differently? A second way is to to demonstrate feminism in practice. So people who are doing gender and law or feminist legal... Feminist jurisprudence courses um, have found it really useful to actually show how it might work in practice. So in family law or in contracts, you can sort of show the ways in which doctrine has developed has not been inevitable and could have been done differently.
0: One of the cases in the book is Royal Bank of Scotland PLC versus Etteridge Number 2. Rosemary Achmuty, professor of law at Reading University, wrote The Feminist Judgment,
2: and I asked her to explain the case to me. It's a case about mortgages, and particularly about undue influence in mortgages. It's a House of Lords case, which makes it very important. It's about the use of one's, the family home, as security for a loan for business purposes, which has become much more common, obviously, in the last couple of decades. And the problem has arisen because, in the past, the family home was usually owned just by the man of the of the household and uh, it was in his name and so of course if he wanted to remortgage the property for a uh, for business purposes he could do that without having to get anyone's permission but after a famous case called Boland in 1981 the banks got very suspicious of other co-owners who might be in the home and of course it was much more common for wives to contribute to, the, um, to buying the property and so after that they insisted that the husband and the wife should own the property jointly which meant that if the husband wanted to raise money on the home he had to get his wife's permission. That's where the undue influence starts and we see a lot of cases in the 1990s where husbands appear to have and, and in some cases were shown to have exerted undue influence on their wives in order to, to pressure them to let them mortgage the property for their businesses. Then the businesses have gone bust and the mortgagee, the bank, has tried to repossess the property. And at that point, the wife has said, because there's a common law doctrine, this isn't a valid contract with the bank because I was pressured, I I was under undue influence when I signed it. Why did you choose this particular case? I chose it because I teach property law. And because this had interested me for a while, because there was a a House of Lords case uh, in the early 90s called Barclays Bank and O'Brien, where Mrs O'Brien actually won. She established it wasn't undue influence, it was misrepresentation, but under the same rules. She won, and the bank wasn't able to repossess the property. But after that, even though the, the House of Lords set down some fairly clear rules for lenders, banks and building societies, to follow so that they wouldn't be caught by this undue influence and unable to repossess. Somehow, in all the case law that followed, the women started losing and the courts became more and more sympathetic to the banks and building societies and and even to me seemed to be not following the rules that the House of Lords had set down. So, uh, so what was their reasoning? What sort of things were they saying? But Lords would back? say things like, for example, the, the rule is that a, a lender will be fixed with constructive notice of undue influence if it hasn't taken particular steps to make sure that the person for whom the loan isn't primarily intended, that is the wife in all of these cases, to make sure that she knows what she's doing, that she understands what she's signing, she understands the amount, she understands that if they fall behind on the repayments, they'll lose the property. So those are the rules. But in fact, we find case after case where the banks haven't Followed these rules, they haven't ensured that the wife got independent advice. They've offered the money before they've received any assurance from the solicitor. In fact, the solicitor has given no independent advice, and yet somehow the courts were finding this excusable because although they were quite prepared to see that there was undue influence, what they weren't prepared to do was to stop the lender from acting on the contract. In other words, they seem to me to be defending. The mortgage industry much more than they were defending wives so they
0: were defending the banks i mean basically yeah. they weren't defending the husbands or were they defending the husbands? no
2: they weren't they weren't particularly defending the husbands not at all in fact because what would happen is the house would be repossessed and, and they would lose the property too what struck me was that they purported to be it purported to be a protective set of, of rules. For, for women, largely, or for people who were being pressured into... Sometimes it was elderly parents or, or, or other people, but it was nearly nearly always wives. They were being pressured into making these decisions that they didn't want to make. So they were saying, you know, equities coming to the, the protection of the vulnerable. But in fact, what actually happened was that the banks were being protected. They were able to repossess the property. The wives were left with no home. What did you want to achieve in your, in your judgment? Well, unlike some of the other people who did feminist judgments, I wasn't going to say that the law that was set down, either either the law under Barclays, Bank and O'Brien, or the new rules that were set down by the House of Lords in Ettridge, I wasn't going to say that was wrong. What I wanted to show was that it wasn't being applied properly, that if you actually did what the rules said, then you could establish that not only was there presumed undue influence, was a presumption of it, but that the banks should actually be caught by this and therefore they shouldn't be able to repossess. So would you say it was a feminist judgment? Oh, yes. Why? Not the slightest doubt that it's feminist because it talks about power and the... It, well, one of the things the courts do, does, it, the courts are talking about balance. We've always got to balance, they say, the rights of the, the poor, vulnerable mortgagee, and of course, we've got to balance the rights of the mortgagee, who, because if we don't allow mortgagees to be lending money to everyone, then they'll withhold their money and, uh, and then we won't have any money to buy anything and to buy houses. So there's this kind of idea of balance. So one of the things I said was there is no balance. First of all, the banks always win so that obviously isn't balanced. But secondly, here are the banks who can take this kind of loss. This is one or two or three, or even if it's a 100 cases, and it probably is, um, for them, it's a minor, minor loss compared to the loss for the woman. But secondly, the parts of the tests were that the the wife must establish that she has trust and confidence in her husband, leaves all the financial decisions to him. And also that the the mortgage would be manifestly disadvantageous to her. And very often, the courts would accept that she trust had trust, uh, in confidence, uh, trust and confidence in her husband, but they wouldn't accept that the transaction was disadvantageous because they said, well, you know, because she's a dependent wife, that's why she has trust and confidence, and that's why she leaves the financial decisions to him, she'd naturally go along with anything that he wants and uh, if they live off the business that he's borrowing the money for then it must be to her advantage so I showed and this was the feminist bit I tried to show that for a wife and mother to lose her home is actually disadvantageous not simply because it would be for anyone it's horrible to find yourself homeless but particularly for housewives because they're homemakers that's their domain that's their only sphere of power Another case in the project, and one where the feminist
0: judgement has been widely used by legal academics in teaching, is Baird Textile Holdings versus Marks & Spencer PLC. Rosemary Hunter
1: outlines the case. So It's a case about long-term contracts. So Marks & Spencer had a long-term contract with Baird, who was a supplier of garments for, to sell in Marks and & Spencer, and they terminated the contract quite rapidly, which left Baird, you know, with all of this equipment and stock and so on. And and Baird was arguing that there was an implied contract for a longer period of time and that they needed more notice and so on. And Martin Spencer, which had had this practice of just having six-month agreements, said, well, no, you know, that's it, the six-month agreement has ended, there's nothing to do with it. And so, you know, the conventional uh, position and the position that was reached by Court of Appeal was that the common intention of the parties was just to have a six month agreement because that's what was written down. And the alternative judgment talks about the relationship, and and from the relationship, you could imply an intention to have longer term arrangements and to care more about each other's (laughs) position and so on. So, this one, what they were doing was really. Marrying um, some of the feminist work around ethic of care with some of the empirical work on contracts and long-term contracts and business relationships and the way that they're actually built on arrangements of trust and confidence and so on, and that they they do build up over time rather than just being this very sort of arm's-length standoffish kind of...
0: I mean, the argument there you could almost say is you know, not necessarily a class, but a, a financial power balance and it's not necessarily feminist.
1: Yeah, the way that they would explain why it's a feminist approach is because it draws on the sort of feminist work around the ethic of care and and people existing in webs of relationships rather than in hierarchical, one-off, decontextualised legal relations with each other. A staunch supporter of the project is
0: one of the country's most senior judges, Baroness Brenda Hale, the only woman judge on the Supreme Court. Here she outlines how a judgment should be made. If we're interpreting a statute, we ought to start with the words of the statute. We then apply
3: a variety of interpretative (laughs) techniques to decide what it means and how it applies to the facts of the case. If we're considering the common law, we should start with the decided cases, divine their rationes decidendi if we can, separate these from the obita dicta along the way, see how they can be fitted together into a coherent whole, attempt to deduce some underlying principles from them, and then apply that principle to the facts of the case.
0: You know that. (laughs) (laughs) You know that's what we do. So, The irony in Baroness Hale's tone is unmistakable. She's deeply aware that this level of neutrality is hard to achieve. Indeed, she's concerned that judges bring a set of values to the judgment process, can decide what result they want to achieve, and then develop respectable legal arguments to support it. She developed the theme at a recent seminar on the feminist legal judgments, organised by the group Interlaw at the offices of Norton Rose solicitors. The best safeguard against
3: judges' reasoning from a given conclusion, apart from the fact that we do have to explain ourselves, and that's a pretty important safeguard... Um, is the collegiate character of an appellate court. Uh, Famous judge Benjamin Cardozo said many years ago, the eccentricities of judges balance one another. Out of the attrition of diverse minds there is beaten something which has a constancy, an uniformity, an average value greater than its component elements. Now that is true, but unfortunately it's just the eccentricities of men that are uh, rubbing up against one another. We need the eccentricities of rather more women as well. And then I wouldn't just be the sore thumb that sticks out. You know, there will be other women who think differently from me and have different views from me, and that could be good. So that is why it really matters that we should have a true diversity of minds at the highest level. The United Kingdom is now shockingly unusual in this. The United States has got three out of its nine Supreme Court judges are women, Canada has four out of its nine Supreme Court judges. Australia has three out of its seven. Uh, And Israel is half and half. So my second message to all of you is that you mustn't just assume that it will come out right one day now that we have had half and half in the law schools for well over 20 years, well over 20 years, half and half entering the professions for that sort of length of time but it's not getting through to the top. Trickle-up is not going to work. There are still far too many systemic barriers to recognising the merit that so many women have because of the strange ways in which people define uh, merit, something to do with the way in which the work is organised and something to do with the way in which commitment is defined and something to do with the culture which depends upon personal relationships and informal networks. I regard it as quite shocking that so many of my
1: colleagues belong to the Garrett Club, but they can't see what all the fuss is about. The point that I would make is that men can give feminist judgments, and I would encourage men to yes. give feminist judgments. We want more men to give feminist judgments. Or you can think of a few instances where judgments have been given, like, you know, I think Lord Nicholls' judgment in White and White is a feminist judgment, um, which just is all about substantive equality for women and not discriminating between homemaker and breadwinner contributions. I mean, I would call that a feminist judgment, but there aren't nearly enough feminist judgments by men, so we're trying to give them a bit of a nudge, I guess, by showing them how it can be done. <music>
2: There's a transcript of this podcast on the Pod Academy website podacademy.org and lots of other podcasts for you to listen to about the latest research.